is Val Thomas, and this is the Big Screen Biograph. Recounting the stories behind the people, behind the films. This time, Tony Tenza, Part 3, The Tail End of Tygon. There is something forlorn about an empty cinema, tragic about a closed one. Cinemas closed across the UK in the 1970s, the seats torn and broken, the curtains dusty and drawn, the reassuring green glow of an exit light now dark. Cinemas closed and were turned into bingo halls or bulldozed completely. Buildings where once dreams had lived were silenced, replaced by car parking lots. Before the rise of the blockbuster, the era of the multiplex, this was the fate of British cinemas. Tony Tenza's fate was tied to these fanciful Art Deco buildings, and the 1970s would see his career hit a brick wall. Hit film after hit film turned into flop after flop. He'd try to outthink the problem, to shake things up, but all to no avail. This is the story of that last gasp, the good films that miraculously came out of it, and the bad films that hastened the demise of Tygon. Welcome to part three of the Tony Tenza story. In 1969, Tony Tenza's company, Tygon British Films, was riding high. Their film, Witchfinder General, directed by Michael Reeves, was that rare thing, a commercially successful exploitation film that had also achieved a measure of critical acclaim. But just a few months later, Tony's plans for more films with Reeves were in ruins. Reeves died tragically young, just months after the film was released. But worse was to come. The major studios, reeling from falling box office receipts and unsure how to proceed, turned their eyes on Tony's audience. In the early 1960s, the big studios wouldn't go near the subjects that were the bread and butter of the exploitation filmmakers. Sex, violence, and horror. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho was a case in point. It was a major studio release from Universal, but they only took it because Hitchcock insisted, and it became a phenomenon, a worldwide smash. And Hollywood took note. All the same, the change didn't happen overnight. The old-time studio bosses took a few years to adjust. They sniffed at projects like Repulsion and Witchfinder General, and stuck with what they considered to be prestige projects. Costly historical epics like Cleopatra, which almost sank 20th Century Fox, and big-budget musicals like Julie Andrews' Star, which failed to find an audience. But the studios learned from their mistakes. They moved on. In 1969, Columbia Pictures released Easy Rider, United Artists released Midnight Cowboy, 
and Paramount released Barbarella. These films had budgets that Tony Tenza could only dream of, but the subject of all these films was pure exploitation, and they were all cultural and financial hits. For low-budget film producers like Tony Tenza, the writing was on the wall. Even if the end was in sight for Tygon Pictures, Tony Tenza remained blissfully unaware. As the 1960s drew to a close, it was business as usual at Tygon, who were ready to release their next science fiction epic. When the highly trained Blue Tiger team disappear without trace into thin air, is it murder or a mysterious invasion? In all, 11 men are missing. 11? But that's impossible. Who or what are the body stealers? There's $20,000 in it for you. You got that much? If the parachute deal comes off, I'll be able to write my own check. But it doesn't? I'm bust. Deal. It's a deal. The search is on for the body stealers. The evidence of their invasion is startling. This is a hunt to the death. But who's? Will they say anything? No. By the time they brought him in here, he'd lost control of his vocal cords. Every one of those names are on a list of personnel who've had intensive training in space conditioning. Who was this strange yet beautiful temptress? What was the secret of her sinister powers? The Body Stealers, a masterpiece of suspicion and suspense. Starring George Saunders, Maurice Evans, Patrick Allen, Hilary Dwyer, and introducing Lorna Wilde, with guest stars Neil Connery, and Robert Fleming. Crossing science fiction with James Bond, The Body Stealers, is a truly dreadful film. But it is hard to dislike. It certainly has verve, energy, and campy humor to liven up the embarrassingly awful special effects and the silly script. The story, which concerns aliens stealing the British Air Force's top men in mid-parachute jump, has a Ron Burgundy-esque hero with chiseled features, running around in a blue cardigan, charming every woman he encounters, including a fantasy glamour alien. While The Body Stealers is relentlessly silly, modern audiences will, I'm sure, get some laughs from it. Patrick Allen, who plays the hero of the piece, delivers all of his lines with a smirk, Previous Tygon alumni, Hilary Dwyer and Robert Fleming, also have roles, and no one appears to be taking it seriously. Certainly aging Hollywood star George Sanders wasn't. Sanders, who had excelled at playing a cynical cad in films such as Rebecca and All About Eve, felt free to deliver his on-screen performance while reading the script, none too cunningly concealed, in his lap. And his presence here adds more curiosity than class. Another curio in this tale was the presence of Neil Connery, brother of Sean, who had a short-lived career as a leading man in Europe, appearing in low-budget James Bond rip-offs with titles like Operation 007. He may not have been a great actor, but he had a great surname, and it looked good on a poster for short-sighted or confused patrons. And anyway, 
Tony was a great believer in allowing fresh talent to feature in his films. In fact, in his own way, Tony Tenza did live up to his reputation as the British Roger Corman, just as that producer excelled at spotting young talent like Scorsese and Coppola. Tony Tenza had given Roman Polanski and Michael Reeves their opportunities, and he saw potential in a young filmmaker he met named Michael Armstrong. According to Armstrong, Tony couldn't have been more helpful. I had this horror script, and no one wanted to know. Then I went to see Tony, and I told him about the project, and that I wanted to direct it. I left the script with him on Saturday, and by the Monday, signed the contract. It was as simple as that. Armstrong's script was called The Dark, and it was the perfect candidate for another Tygon AIP co-production. Michael Armstrong thought of it as a psycho-type tale of murder in amongst the complicated relationships of a group of 1960s teens, and it was a surprisingly progressive tale, including both gay and straight relationships, reflecting Armstrong's own experiences as a young man of that era. Looking at it from a modern viewpoint, it looks even more promising. This film had the potential to be a 1960s equivalent of Friday the 13th, with a mysterious killer stalking and killing the teens one by one. They were young, irresponsible, and they were just looking for kicks. You look bored. You guessed right. I am bored. I just wish something would happen. She could not know how soon she was to regret those words. How they would all wish it had never happened. <laughs> But the series of setbacks and compromises, which served as lucky accidents for Tygon on Witchfinder General, would not be repeated here. As with Witchfinder, the problems began with casting. Negotiations on the cast began months before Boris Karloff's death in February of 1969, and AIP were insistent that the ailing star must feature in this film, purely because he owed them ten days' worth of work from a previous contract. Furthermore, they insisted Karloff be given a large number of scenes in order to get their ten days' worth of shooting. They helpfully wrote these scenes for Armstrong and sent them to him. They featured Boris Karloff as a wheelchair-bound detective. It really didn't fit with the rest of the story at all. And then Boris passed away, to be replaced by British actor Dennis Price who poor Michael Armstrong still had to include, still in a wheelchair, for no good reason. Also, added AIP, to make room for all these additional scenes, some of the existing script would just have to go. There was really no need for all this stuff about relationships, was there? Armstrong was handed a revised version of his script, with several key scenes ripped out. And by the way, they continued, who even were these kids that Armstrong wanted to cast? Who was this Ian Ogilvie guy? No, no, he, he had to go. And, uh, who the hell is David Bowie? I mean, what sort of a name even is that? As it happens, Michael Armstrong had met with the young singer in 1968, 
and was immediately fascinated by his presence and charisma. He knew that if he got Barry on camera, it would be really something special. But AIP were not convinced. <laughs> Seriously, Mike, you're a young guy. You don't understand these things. If you're going to cast a singer, well, you need someone new, someone fresh. Someone that modern, with it, groovy kids can really identify with. Uh, I mean, like, oh, how about this Frankie Avalon kid? Now there's a young face that the kids just love. If you don't know Frankie Avalon, he was a particularly bland American teen star from the early 1960s who starred in the popular drive-in film Beach Blanket Bingo. He is the polar opposite of David Bowie, the anti-Bowie, if you will. But AIP were insistent. Which is why Michael Armstrong's film features a very out-of-place American with a 1950s haircut in a film about swinging London teens. Armstrong was, of course, deeply upset by all this interference, but in a meeting with Tony Tenza, he was reassured that he could film two versions of the film, one for Tygon, one for AIP. It happens all the time, said Tony. But with only a four-week shoot to accommodate two different versions of the same film, Michael Armstrong certainly faced a challenge on his directorial debut, and when the AIP executives saw a rough cut of their version of the film, with all that ludicrous stuff featuring Frankie Avalon and the redundant subplot about the detective in the wheelchair, they were furious. The house belonged to one family for about 200 years. They were obviously a strange bunch. One night, one of them went mad, hacked all the others to pieces, and then killed himself. And they haunt this house? No, they don't. The killer is supposed to be the ghost. How would you like to be thought of as a suspected psychopath and be treated like one? Because that's what one of us must be. Now, can any one of you prove that you didn't kill Gary? We're not insane. How do you know? You know, I've always been afraid of the dark. If you were so frightened of the dark, why the hell did you come and play here when you were a kid? This film made no sense, they said. And who even is this Michael Armstrong kid? Michael Armstrong was out. Line producer Jerry Levy took over. He filmed new, new scenes and introduced a whole new character, a stalker boyfriend, played by George Sewell. It still made very little sense, and the unmasking of the killer comes out of nowhere, but at least it was less incomprehensible than before. Michael Armstrong praised Tony Tenzer for being as supportive as possible, under the circumstances. But when the poor man was invited to a screening of the finished cut, he could barely recognize his film. By the time the lights came up, my head was in my hands, he lamented. However, AIP got what they wanted, a low-budget horror film to draw in undemanding teenagers. 
Armstrong's film was subtly retitled The Haunted House of Horror, and on the strength of that title alone, the film made a decent profit. But if horror proved disappointing, at least Tygon had another string to their bow. Sex. They rushed out another naughty pseudo-documentary called Love in Our Time, and they also cashed in on the brief vogue for films about lesbians, sparked by Robert Aldrich's surprise hit, The Killing of Sister George. Tygon's film, Showing Women Together, also happened to be the very first British film to feature a menage a trois. It was called Monique, and was surprisingly not as exploitative as it sounds, featuring a sensitive script and actual acting. But possibly Tygon's most bizarre use of sex was to pair it with British slapstick comedian Norman Wisdom. For those of you who are too young, or not British enough to remember, Norman Wisdom was a hugely successful comedy star of the early 1960s. He is probably best described as the British Jerry Lewis. He typically plays a go-getting, none-too-bright, accident-prone underdog character, best known for getting into scrapes and for falling off things, while also being quite loud. But while slapstick is a surprisingly complex and international language of comedy, late 1960s audiences fancied themselves as a little bit more sophisticated than that. Take Peter Sellers, he was a slapstick comedy genius, boasting international fame thanks to his accident-prone character, Inspector Clouseau, of the Pink Panther films. But by the late 1960s, he had moved on to more sophisticated material, such as sex comedies like What's New Pussycat and the counterculture satire I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, which saw Sellers' square character falling in love with a flower child and joining the Age of Aquarius. So, surely the same thing will work with Norman Wisdom. I do not wish to demean Norman Wisdom's talents. His early comedies have stood the test of time remarkably well, and he remains a beloved figure in British comedy to this very day. But his foray into the world of adult humour in a film called What's Good for the Goose may have fared better if he had not been paired with director Menachem Golan. The name may be familiar to you. Menachem Golan would later team up with fellow Israeli and his cousin, Yoram Globus, to form the Mighty Cannon Group, the production company which would dominate 1980s video rental shelves with Chuck Norris action pictures and ninja movies. But, as a director, he was not known for his light touch. One famous story about Golan recounts a tale where his wife visited her husband while he was directing a film. He took a look at her with their young baby. Perfect, he said, and seized the baby, placing it on the back of a horse-drawn wagon. End action, 
he yelled. The horse took off, the wagon took off, and the baby was bounced around in the back. His wife, seeing her baby thrown around in that way, panicked and went to catch her child before it got bounced right out of the wagon, but Menachem held her back. Please, darling, he said, not in the middle of the shot. A larger-than-life character, prone to strong outbursts, and with an impressive military background, he wasn't exactly the perfect choice to direct a comedy film starring an anarchic physical comedian, and he didn't appreciate Wisdom's preference for improvised comedy. Locked into a script which Golan viewed as a strict blueprint to be followed with military precision, Wisdom appears subdued and unhappy. Worse still, the British public just weren't ready to accept their lovable clown as a middle-aged seducer of teenager Sally Jeeson, chasing her around in his Y-fronts. And consequently, the film was a miserable failure in Norman's home country. But, as was often the case, Tony managed to pull a rabbit from the hat. A skilled negotiator, he sold the US rights to an American company, Sight Unseen. And so, they didn't realize what a lemon they got. And so, the film made a profit for Tony, despite a lamentable performance in the US too. The American distribution rights saved Tony's next disastrous effort too a particularly cheap-looking Barbarella rip-off, which attempted that same mix of adventure, sex, mild sadomasochism, and science fiction. The film was released in America under the title of Alien Women, but in the UK, under its original title, Zeta One, it barely got a release at all. And no bloody surprise, it is a terrible film, an unsalvageable mess. It is something to do with alien women abducting beautiful Earth women for, um, reasons. But standing in the way of their plans are James Robertson Justice and Charles Hawtrey, of all people, heading up a secret government department. These two men were established British comedy actors, well out of place in this tawdry tale of British space strippers. I can only assume they were desperate for money. Theoretically, this is a tale of female empowerment, in that the alien women run rings around the dastardly government men, but naturally the women do this mostly naked and occasionally get captured by the nefarious males for a spot of vaguely embarrassed-looking S&M. It is unsurprising that the women are mostly naked. The budget for this film is so thin, the costume designers' futuristic outfits for the female aliens are scanty at best. The poor female aliens wear uniforms which look suspiciously like macrame plant pot holders for the duration of the film. Meanwhile, the interiors of the alien women's spaceship looked like they were shot in a drafty warehouse, and the exteriors appear to have been shot on an overcast golf course. The jokes are bad, the story disconnected, and the whole enterprise embarrassingly amateurish. Not only that, but the completed film was only 60 minutes long. 
Tony brought in his old reliable director, Vernon Sewell, to direct some additional bookend scenes, starring Jutta Stensgaard from Hammer's Lost for a Vampire to add 20 minutes to the running time. And if these scenes of Jutta playing strip poker in what appears to be a crappy little flat look cheap, it's, well, because they were. Zeta One is an embarrassment of a film and a colossal waste of the talent involved. James Robertson Justice followed in the George Sanders tradition and refused to learn any of his lines. Instead, he had them written onto his trousers. Charles Hawtrey struggles to lend his comedy talents to desperately unfunny lines, and Hammer's Valerie Leon is similarly wasted. Tony shelved the film in the UK and counted his blessings that the Americans wanted it at all. But Tony wouldn't be able to rely on American money saving his productions for much longer. The major studios were taking a battering in the early 1970s. Out of touch with their audiences, the Hollywood studios were stepping back from involvement in the British film industry. Overnight, it seemed, the dollars disappeared, the finance evaporated, and British film studios were left scrambling for financing. Looking back on the British films of that era, it is readily apparent. For example, looking at Hammer's early 1970s output compared to the heyday of its 1960s collaborations with Warner Brothers, there is a steep decline in production quality. Redundancies were felt throughout the industry, cinemas closed, and those which stayed open fell into disrepair. It was a vicious circle. British audiences stayed away from cinemas with broken seats, threadbare curtains, and worn carpet and with no audience to sustain it, film production in Britain plummeted. To an extent, this played to the production strategy of Tony's early Compton days. Instead of seeking co-production deals across a raft of films, Tony focused on raising limited financing on a film-by-film -film basis. On the theory that, if a film were cheap enough, even modest success could still put Tygon in the black and it was on this basis that Tony optioned a film called Young Man, I Think You're Dying, an extremely unusual, character-driven horror film starring Beryl Reed and Dame Flora Robson. Even here, Tony managed to turn the decline of British cinema to his advantage. Dame Flora was apparently persuaded to take the role on the advice of none other than Sir Laurence Olivier. The esteemed actor advised Dame Flora that any role in the current climate was better than none. The two actresses were probably helped by the fact that Young Man, I Think You're Dying is more of a family drama of hidden secrets than a traditional horror film. The film feels more like a BBC play about repressed memories, punctuated by moments of violence in which the leading ladies play no part. As a result, the film, retitled The Beast in the Cellar, is a frustrating watch for the horror viewer looking for quick, gory fun. Anthony Tenza spotted right away that the film he'd got was not the film he'd commissioned. If you want to make a woman's film, you make a weepy, not a western, was how he rather unpolitically put it. But that doesn't mean it's a bad film exactly. The two lead actresses are great together, and if it moves along more slowly than expected, it is at least a well-acted film with a strong anti-war message. At Tony's insistence, additional scenes of horror were shot, 
and inserted into the film. As a result, these do feel rather out of place in this odd little drama, but at least it made for a good poster, and therefore reasonable box office, despite lukewarm reviews. However, perhaps because that film didn't go in the direction that Tony wanted, he decided to split the risk with his next venture. He had been impressed by the compendium films of Amicus, and wanted to try something similar, an anthology horror film which was essentially a series of short films patched together. After all, he reasoned, if he ended up with one dud story, like The Beast in the Cellar, at least something better would be along in 20 minutes. He commissioned a writer named Robert Wynne Simmons to write an anthology tale for Tygon. Wynne Simmons initially disliked the idea, but he had enjoyed Tygon's Witchfinder General a great deal. He'd liked the look of that film, how it had made the past vivid in its unflinching depiction of rural life with its lived-in shacks and worn-down peasants. So he decided his anthology would also be set in that same world, exploring the mystery of British folklore from three different perspectives. When Simmons began working on three connected stories about the insidious effect of an ancient pagan artifact, telling the story of innocent young lovers whose lives are destroyed by it, then of a naive clergyman battling against it, and finally of a rural magistrate who comes face to face with it. His working title for the project was The Devil's Flesh, and it started to take shape over the course of the next few months. But while he was waiting for this project to come to life, Tony began to feel uneasy about horror. Not only were the big studios getting in on the act, but a new wave of horror had begun to land on British shores. From one front, the young Americans, newly radicalized by Vietnam and Kent State, with their wild anti-establishment horror films like Night of the Living Dead, and from the other side, the Italians, pioneering their own brand of ultra-stylish, ultra-violent horror with Bay of Blood and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Tony decided, once again, to shift ground. He commissioned a children's film of all things, with Black Beauty, and producer Patrick Curtis returned with another interesting proposal for Tony. Patrick Curtis, you may remember, was the man who had introduced Tony Tenza to Michael Reeves, and the three men had made the sorcerers together. Patrick's then-girlfriend was Raquel Welch, who had thrown herself into the production, helping out wherever she could, despite her nascent star status. By the early 1970s, Curtis and Welch were now married, and Patrick was keen to find a star vehicle for his wife who was, at that time, still more famous for sporting a fur bra in one million years BC than for any serious acting. Welch wanted to establish herself as a serious actress, and Sir Patrick had two scripts for Tony to consider. The first was The Devil's Discord, a haunted house film that Michael Reeves had been keen to make at one time, but Tony's interest in horror had waned from those heady days. But the second project that had Tony's interest. I always wanted to make a cowboy film, Tenza confessed. I've been watching westerns since I was a kid, and I needed to get it out of my system. So when Patrick showed me a script for a film called Henny Calder, 
Well, I just jumped at it. enthusiasm from Tony Tenzer, the man who always looked at the marketing angles and the dollars and cents first. In that moment, the no-nonsense businessman was replaced by the ten-year-old who had sneaked into his local Odeon to watch John Wayne movies. And it would nearly ruin him. The fact that Patrick Curtis and Raquel Welch came as a package deal meant that, at a stroke, Tygon was suddenly making a major Hollywood film with a major star. This was both good and bad. Good because it made financing easier to come by, with banks lining up to underwrite the project. Bad because now Tony had to cast more stars to play alongside Raquel. And it is quite a cast. Ernest Borgnine and Struther Martin were brought on to play the villains of the piece, who shoot down Hanny's husband in cold blood before raping her and burning down her homestead. Robert Culp is the cynical gunslinger who teaches Hanny how to handle a gun in order to help her on her quest for revenge. And finally, Christopher Lee gets an unlikely role as a British gunsmith. Yes, that Christopher Lee. Tony Tenzer had promised the actor a non-horror role in one of his films, and Lee seems to be enjoying himself here free of fangs at last in a good guy role. Thomas! Sure is good to see you. You too, compadre. This is Hanny. Calder. Welcome to Mexico, Miss Calder. Mrs. Welcome to Mexico, Mrs. Calder. You finally managed to split the barrel on that old Adams? No, she's still true. I just come by to see if you got any more young ones. Two. Nights are cold down here. Come on in the house. But all these actors... They didn't come cheap. All the same, costs were suppressed by shooting in Spain on an old spaghetti western set, and Raquel Welch deferred her upfront salary for a share in the film's profits. But right away, problems arose. Tony found that the cost-cutting and short-cutting that were part and parcel of British independent filmmaking were not tolerated by his American crew. Sharing accommodation and travel wouldn't even be considered. Patrick Curtis slowed down the production by insisting on supervision of all scenes which featured Raquel Welch, and when a member of the crew passed comment on the producer's wife, it escalated into a fight that saw Curtis spending a night in a Spanish jail. The atmosphere soured further when members of the crew went unpaid due to spiraling production costs. As a result, the production slowed to a snail's pace, and Tony was informed that, unless costs were cut or the production speed increased, the whole thing would have to be shut down half-finished. Tony took the desperate step of assembling a rough cut of the film, with publicity photos used to cover for the scenes which had not yet been shot. When the West had no laws, and violence abounded, you needed a protector. Someone to watch over you. You're a bounty hunter. I am. Will you shoot that gun? Can you teach me? 
going to do this morning and night until you can do it 30 times. Then I'll be ready. Draw the weapon out of the holster slowly. Raise it to arm's length. Squeeze the trigger. Don't pull it. Win or lose, you lose. You'll not be the same person. I hope to hell I'm not. Can I put my pants on? You're not going to need them for long. You're right about me. I'm a rotten liar. Rotten with a gun, too. Now who's lying? Raquel Welch's Hanny Calder. Hanny Calder. A name you won't forget. It was screened for investors and distributors alike, and, much to Tony's relief, Paramount came through with a distribution offer that saved the film. Strangely enough, on watching the film, all this behind-the-scenes drama doesn't show up on screen. It's a straightforward enough revenge western. Possibly too straightforward. The only complexity or interest being added by the fact that, for once, the woman in a western avenges herself. But it's exciting, sometimes funny, and when Hanny gets her revenge, it is satisfying and thrilling. Despite this, it wasn't a huge success for Tygon and marked the beginning and end of their attempt to make Hollywood movies. Sadly, it also marked the beginning of the end of Raquel's marriage to Patrick Curtis, too, and by the end of the shoot, the couple were separated. As for the critical response, it was mixed. Reviewers enjoyed sections of the film, but were confused by the jarring changes in tone. These are apparent even watching the film now, there are a number of humorous scenes in watching Hanny learn how to become a gunslinger. There are, of course, glamorous scenes of Hanny buying cowboy clothes and shrinking her trousers in the bath. But don't forget, these are set against a backdrop of a vicious murder and a cruel rape. The rape scene in particular is unpleasant and unnecessary, and while the audience sees nothing, it leaves a sour taste in the mouth. So when Ernest Borgnine and his fellow rapists are later revealed as comically incompetent, it's not very funny. A rape scene in another Tygon movie was also causing problems for Tony. Robert Wynne Simmons' script for the anthology movie, The Devil's Flesh, had now been condensed back into one story at the insistence of the director. Tony had hired a fellow named Piers Haggard for the job, and Sir Wynn Simmons' revised script had been retitled Satan's Skin. Haggard was a good choice for the project. He was an intelligent director who directed a number of television episodes at the BBC, and he immediately saw what Wynn Simmons was driving at. The thing that appealed to me, he said, was the rural setting. The nooks and crannies of woodland, the edges of fields, the ploughing, the labour, the sense of soil. That was what I wanted to bring to this film. Piers Haggard was fascinated by the idea of an ancient pagan evil emerging from the very soil itself. 
almost as if ancient fertility gods, Dionysian agents of chaos, were infecting the minds of the villagers. Consequently, he sets the camera low for much of the film, to make the audience feel as if some ancient evil is coming up from out of the earth. Haggard was also very clear he didn't want to make a film grounded in Christian tradition. His Satan, his devil, didn't spring from the Book of Revelations, but from the old religions of ancient Britain. Not good, not evil, just a force of nature, indifferent to human suffering. I was determined not to make a Camp Hammer-style horror film. I wasn't interested in Dracula, Haggard explained, but I was interested in the dark things that people feel, and the dark things that happen. It is likely that Haggard took some of those dark things too seriously, and pushed things a little too far. What Wynne Simmons only hinted at, Haggard decided to show, which is why the film includes a cruel rape and murder. Even Haggard expresses some regret for it now. If I look at the rape scene now, I, I think it's very probably too strong, he said, and it's interesting that I wasn't bothered at the time. I think that if you get your teeth into a scene, which is going to be very strong, many directors get seduced, and I was seduced by the sheer dramatic power. Writer Robert Wynne Simmons reiterates that the rape was not in his screenplay. It was implied but not shown, he said. It was Piers who insisted on doing it that way. I found it all very disturbing. Piers Haggard explains that he was influenced by the culture of the time. We were all a bit interested in witchcraft, he explained. We were all a bit interested in free love. The rules of cinema were changing, and nudity became possible, and indeed, possibly over-prevalent. However, the most problematic part of the scene is that it involves young people, and it was this aspect which also bothered the censor. Cuts were ordered, away from the rape, and to reaction shots, but, as Wynne Simmons said, the way it was recut makes it even more unpleasant. The scene itself, of a group of children and teenagers taking part in a bizarre ceremony that culminates in murder, is led by a character named Angel Blake. In a film which features a large cast of characters, due to the original anthology format being compressed, it is Angel who really stands out, due to an incredible performance from Linda Hayden. Angel. I'm glad you're here. I've been meaning to speak with you, Angel, Blake. Your behavior, Angel, has been most unseemly of late. I mean to complain to your father of it. Do you like what you see? Shame on you, child. Do you like me, sir? You. You are beautiful, Angel. Mark had the devil in him. 
so we cut it out. She was only 17 when she was cast in this part, but had already starred in a drama called Baby Love for Tony Tenza's old partner, Michael Klinger. It was another unsavory Lolita-type tale. This sort of thing was very much in vogue at the time, although taken from a modern perspective, it makes for deeply uncomfortable viewing. Nevertheless, Linda's talent shone through, and she was subsequently cast in Taste the Blood of Dracula for Hammer as the daughter of one of the hypocritical Victorian gentlemen. And again, she really stands out from the rest of the non-vampire cast. Christopher Lee was very much part of that setup. I was actually quite mesmerised by him when I first met him because on the screen, you know, with all the, the makeup and the thing and everything, and, it's, and actually on the set, he was quite a chilling piece. I remember, the, you know, when we had to do the scene, Isla and I, he was very, uh, very charismatic. Alice. Who are you? How do you know my name? When you meet him and they're going up for lunch afterwards, they're saying the woolly hat and, the, and singing his operatic arias, uh, totally different. Uh, then came Blood and Satan's Claw, yes, where I played Angel Blake, who was a very interesting character and hadn't been anything like the character I played in The uh, Taste of Blood of Dracula. And uh, she was sort of a willful. Piers Haggard thought she would be perfect for Angel, juxtaposing her youthful and, well, angelic appearance, with a soul possessed by something rotten and ancient. In some ways, you could see Linda Hayden as the English Linda Blair. And we went to this quarry, and I was running around in this long sheet, it was. I mean, I had, this is my demonic phase of Angel Blake, when I had all the, the paint on my face, which was meant to be all the, the dye from the plants, everything this long, and this halo of thorns in my head and all the rest of it. I looked dreadful, and I fell down the, the quarry. I had to do this particular scene, and I cut myself. And of course, it was all white and everything, and I got blood everywhere. And they were worried that I hadn't had a tetanus injection, so they whisked me off to the local hospital. <laughs> And all I can remember seeing these old people in this hospital and they thought they'd actually already gone and were up there because this sort of white, sort of, they thought this is an angel, I don't think so. They thought they were in hell, I think. I was offered that one um, by Piers Haggard, the director, um, and Tony Tenser, who had been Michael Kling's partner all those years before. I think Tony Tenser felt it was a bit of a coup. Linda also recalled the chap who played Satan he was a funny little guy. I never saw him out of his Satan costume, she said. Unusually for the embodiment of absolute evil, he was obsessed with a song in the charts at that time, Gimme Dat Ding, which he would sing all the time, somewhat undermining his status as Lord of Darkness. Patrick Weimark is the other standout in a very strong cast. He plays the magistrate, determined to defeat Satan, but there is a touch of the Witchfinder General about him. It seems like when Simmons and Pierce Haggard were having fun with the idea of a cruel Witchfinder, finding himself at odds with actual evil. This will be sufficient. Yes. I mean to run this devil of yours to earth, if he exists. <laughs> These dogs know how to tear the devil's heels. But, sir, many are afflicted. Innocent folk may be hurt. Leave me to judge who is innocent. 
Aside from Pierce Haggard's over-enthusiasm for brutality and violence, there were no major issues with this film. It came in only slightly above budget, and is an impressive film. In fact, the marriage of ideas between writer and director resulted in one of the most singular British horror films of the 1970s. It feels like a genuine attempt to do something very different, which kicks the stone away from Britain's pagan past to unearth something hideous under the veneer of Christianity. Like The Wicker Man, which would be released two years later, this is a film that attempts to explore the influence of the ancient Britons on modern Britons, even after numerous invasions and the adoption of Christianity. You might like to think that English history starts in 1066, says this film, but in actuality, the English identity goes back much further, and is much, much darker than you know. The critical reaction to the film's Satan's skin was also largely positive, but early screenings indicated that audiences were completely apathetic to it. It was most likely the period setting, which made the film feel like a throwback to the previous decade, as opposed to modern horror films like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. All the same, Tony Tenza still believed in this film, and felt that if it could be repackaged, it would do better. It would eventually be released under the title The Blood on Satan's Claw, on a double bill with The Beast in the Cellar, and still proved a box office disappointment. The only solace Tony could take from this is that, in the 50 years following its release, the film would gain a huge reputation and a passionate following as a British folk horror film. It seems that Tony's instincts for the film were correct, the problem being that the film was way ahead of its time, and now has a reputation that continues to grow. But that was of little benefit to Tygon at the time. Additionally galling was that, at the same time, Hammer made one of their most popular films ever, and their biggest hit at the British box office in 1971. But it is not what you think. Hammer had rediscovered the knack for making hit films from TV shows, and they'd adapted the saucy laughs and cheeky humour of British sitcom On the Bosses for the cinema. If you have never seen the show, it is about a cheeky bus driver and his cheeky bus conductor chasing what they call Rumpet. Or, in other words, women at least 20 years younger than them. To be fair, this was the plot of nearly all British sitcoms at that time. Tygon attempted to leap onto the same bandwagon with an adaptation of another sitcom, For the Love of Ada. But as this was about old age pensioners in love, it didn't have quite the same saucy appeal as on the buses, and it provided Tygon with yet another flop. Tygon tried again with a film called The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, a comic anthology film which attempted to channel the appeal of a host of British comedy stars. The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, with a whole hilarious gang of your favourite comedians. Roy Hutt, Joan Sims, Bernard Breslau, Bruce Forsyth, Harry Seacombe, 
Geoffrey Belden, June Whitfield. Leslie Phillips, Harry H. Corbett. I distinctly heard you call me Dowling. Ian Carmichael and Alfie Bass. Spike Milligan, Ronald Fraser. Stephen Lewis. That's vandalism, that is. Have the law on you for that. Have the police off you. Make a point and see it to get the full impact of the magnificent Seven Deadly Sins. But, yet again, audiences stayed away. British TV viewers liked these actors for the characters they played on TV. They weren't interested in seeing them being someone else in a short movie segment. Of more interest was Tygon's attempt to make a film from another TV series. Doomwatch was a popular science fiction thriller about a band of ecological investigators looking into the effects of pollution on the land. And if that sounds a bit dry, try to think of it as an ecological version of The X-Files, with the Doomwatch team regularly facing off against science fiction threats like new viruses, superintelligent computers, and rats with a newly acquired taste for human flesh. In Tygon's Doomwatch the film, a new character played by Ian Bannon investigates a remote island where a strange disease appears to be mutating the islanders into super-strong Neanderthal versions of themselves. The time is now. The place? The island of Balfe, just off the west coast of Britain. What frightening thing is happening here to change the face of its inhabitants? I don't know. That's the truth. I don't know. Someone or something is threatening their very existence. And nothing and no one is safe. Not even you. Dr. Shaw, scientist. His job, to save these people from the pitiable, frenzied monsters they are fast becoming. This island has enough trouble of its own without you coming here and stirring up more. What troubles? Just leave them alone, Dr. Shaw. What can we do? You can pray. For someone is tampering with nature itself. And on the scene, the Doom Watchers. Time and life is running out on this doomed island. And what's happening to them today could happen to us tomorrow. Doctor? Sure? All right now? It seems a strange choice to make to sideline the regular characters of the TV series to supporting roles. But on the other hand, Ian Bannon does make for a great hero, aided on the island by Judy Geeson as he delves into the mystery, and perhaps feeling a need for greater control, or perhaps just wanting to get away from the business end of films and back into the fun of film production, Tony Tenzer decided to line produce this one himself. And actually, the film looks great. The eerie island setting, nicely evoked by veteran Hammer director Peter Sasdy, is complemented by good performances from Bannon and Jason. The biggest problem with this film is that the popularity of the TV series was on the wane when it was released. The TV show would actually end that same year. It was yet another Tygon film, which received disappointing reviews and bad box office receipts. And yet, Tygon as a company was doing rather well, despite the flops. 
they were still managing to make money from foreign imports, their old bread and butter. In the early 1970s, they released films with names like Au Pair Girls and Karma Sutra. And with names like those, I'm sure you don't need me to explain the plots. In 1971, the company announced profits of nearly half a million pounds. And yet, the perception in the city of London was that film production companies were a bad investment, due to the dire financial situation right across the movie industry at that time. It was time for a quick bit of rebranding. And so, Tygon was no more. The half-lion, half-tiger that represented Tony was retired, and Tygon British Films became the innocuous-sounding LMG. And given the poor reception to Tygon made productions, as opposed to the decent profits from films made elsewhere that Tygon distributed, there were questions raised about whether LMG should focus purely on distribution and ditch movie-making for good. But production at LMG didn't stop all at once. A number of erstwhile Tygon projects were already underway. These included a couple of high-profile, highbrow projects intended to improve Tygon's reputation for low-rent seediness. These included a filmed version of the stage play Miss Julie, starring Helen Mirren, and a historical romance named Neither Sea Nor Sand, written by British TV newsreader Gordon Honeycomb. Of course, neither of these two projects were nearly commercial enough to save LNG from their downward spiral. As it turns out, Miss Julie wasn't the only stage adaptation that LMG were working on. They also attempted a somewhat less cultured adaptation of a West End farce named Not Now, Darling. Anytime I I'll be happy to fall. But not now, darling. Not now, darling, darling, not now. starred British comedy familiars, Joan Sims, Leslie Phillips, Barbara Windsor, and a host of other familiar faces. And Tony had hopes that the Not Now films could be the next carry on. And in fact, a sequel, Not Now Comrade, was eventually released. The British comedy contingent was enhanced still further by bringing on David Croft of Dad's Army fame to direct. Bringing in a director of TV shows made sense, the truly pioneering thing about Not Now Darling is that it was shot in what was called Multivision, a new technology bought and owned by LMG. It utilized not one, but four cameras, all running at once, just as in studio TV productions. This basically meant the director could make the movie in much the same way as a traditional TV sitcom, cutting between the four cameras afterward to create a sense of pace and excitement. The unique thing about Multivision was that, after the film had been assembled, it could be transferred onto celluloid and released as a proper cinema film. LMG first used this technology on Miss Julie, and they were excited that this would reduce film production time and therefore cost. But it was a new technique, and there was a certain amount of chaos involved as people tried to figure out how it worked. It was a shambles, said Barbara Windsor. This comes across in the film itself, which is a strangely flat, lifeless production, with actors who seem constrained and awkward, performing as if they are in a theatre with no audience. Therefore, the frenetic build-up and release of comic tension required by a farce just isn't there, 
and the increasingly ridiculous behavior of the characters is just annoying. Not only that, but the humor has aged badly, and watching this film feels like you're watching an X-rated version of Are You Being Served? Despite this, LMG now felt their future lay with Multivista, and purchased the rights to yet another British sitcom, Father Dear Father, with a view to filming a feature version of the show. Beyond that, they had no plans to make any other sort of film, and Tony Tenzer, the founder of Tygon British Films, felt that his time at the company was coming to an end. He had just one last film with LMG, but one that had begun life when Tygon was still Tygon. It seems a fitting end to Tony's time with the company, and in some ways it serves as something of an elegy to 1960s British horror in general. It was called The Creeping Flesh. Note the difference between these two skulls. Neanderthal man, primitive, ape-like. Now compare that with this new specimen. This is the link that scientists have been searching for. A scientific experiment turns into a nightmare as a creature from hell, buried since the dawn of time, is restored to life. Do you believe in evil, Doctor? I do not mean evil as it is commonly understood. I mean the existence of evil as a living organism. An epidemic slowly spreading until it affects the whole world. Frankenstein's monster can be destroyed by fire. Dracula by a silver stake driven through his heart. But nothing, nothing will avail against the absolute evil of the creeping flesh. Not only was it shot at studios traditionally used by Amicus, and in fact on the same set as the house that dripped blood, but it featured two Hammer favourites in Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and was directed by Hammer director Freddie Fisher. The film even features a short appearance by Hammer's favourite character actor, Michael Ripper. This package of talent had been put together by producer Michael Redbourne, so Tony had relatively little to do in terms of working on the script or bringing actors on board. Really, all he had to do was sign the checks and let the team get to it. All the same, ever the movie fan, he couldn't resist visiting the set and catching up with Peter Cushing, who he had not seen since the Blood Beast terror. But a lot had changed for the actor in that time. He changed quite a lot, said Tony. He'd nursed his wife through a long illness, and when she died, it had quite an impact on him. He was much quieter, much more withdrawn. Throwing himself into his work, The Creeping Flesh was just one of a dozen films that Cushing would make in the two years following his wife's death. In this film, Cushing and Lee play brothers and rival scientists in competition with each other over the coveted Richter Prize. The two men are both investigating the cause of evil and insanity both believing it is all in the blood. And Penelope, how is she? I do not imagine she will be unduly disturbed by all this because she has believed her mother to be dead for many years. When are you going to tell her the truth, Emmanuel? I can't. You know I can't. What do you mean? For so long it's been on my mind that her mother's illness might be hereditary that it might recur in Penelope. 
James, you're the authority in this field. Is such a thing possible, or am I worrying needlessly? Very soon I hope to be able to answer that. The answers, and many others, will be in this manuscript when it is published. I'm entering it for the Richter Prize. The Richter Prize? Yes, Emmanuel. Things have changed. It was always you who was destined for great success, whereas I was only the poor, hard-working half-brother whom you had to put up with. Now it is I who am the success. I intend to win that prize, Emmanuel, and the prestige that goes with it. However, it is Cushing who makes the first breakthrough when he retrieves an ancient skeleton from New Guinea. It is, he tells us, the remains of Shish Kang, the evil one of local legend, who corrupted man with his nature, bringing war and hatred to humanity. Cushing becomes increasingly excited when water is spilled on the skeletal hand of Shish Kang, and in a nifty bit of stop-motion animation, the creeping flesh of the title regenerates on the area. Cushing removes the fleshy finger, I don't need to enlarge on what it looks like, and takes a blood sample, thus enabling him to make a vaccine against evil itself. Now these ordinary human blood cells are completely different, of course. Now, let's see what happens when you mix the two. Mine and a little bit of his. Now, mix them together. Since evil is a disease, it could therefore be possible to immunize man by some form of inoculation. Good, yes, that'll do. Now, theoretically, Waterloo. If a minute quantity of evil serum were introduced into the bloodstream of an individual, that individual should be proof against contamination by the evils of this world for the rest of his or her life. We must prepare a serum from the evil cells and put it to a practical test. It really does say something about Cushing's gifts as an actor that he makes any of this sound remotely plausible. Of course, with his absent-minded air and crazed manner, he brings to mind a more distracted version of Dr. Frankenstein, and soon enough he is experimenting on his own daughter to cure her perceived insanity, with disastrous results. Lee is not given nearly as much to do in this film, but he is as intimidating a presence as ever, in charge of a hideous psychiatric institution, and it is always a pleasure to see these two old friends together again. Nevertheless, there is something of an air of disappointment in this last period horror from Tygon. Given the amount of talent involved, it is a shame that the film lacks the passion and verve of the classic Hammer movies, and the lack of budget didn't help. We are well into the final act of the film by the time Shish Kang is resurrected and goes off to seek revenge on Peter Cushing, so the trailer of the film, which promises wall-to-wall creeping flesh, is more than a little misleading. But the film's weaknesses, and its strengths, were almost irrelevant by the time it was released, for another horror movie came out in 1973, and The Exorcist didn't just change the game, it swept all the pieces from the board and threw them at the audience. 
In this context, the creeping flesh seems hopelessly outdated by comparison, and it is only in more recent years, as this context has faded, that the film has started to receive a little more recognition for the beautiful, stately, period piece horror that it is. And with that, Tony stepped away from LNG, or Tygon, or whatever you want to call it. After six years, he was out on his own again, and he toyed with the idea of rolling the dice one last time, producing one last exploitation movie. And what a movie it was to be. Nasty, isn't it? Again. I'll put him in there. You won't tell anyone, will you, Eddie? It'll be our secret, won't it? You, you, you won't tell it. Pete Walker was a director after Tony's heart, a man who churned out movies with a watchful eye on what would grab the attention of a jaded public, a man who openly admitted to finding sex scenes boring but was happy to include them if it meant increased box office receipts. Pete Walker had cut his teeth making adverts in the 1960s before getting bored with it, buying his own equipment and making softcore porn and violent action movies. His early films are not great, something which he himself would readily admit, but they were cheap and they had great posters. But by the time he met with Tony Tenzer, Pete Walker's films were becoming a lot more interesting. This is due in large part to his discovery of a cheeky young writer named David McGillivray, who shared Walker's somewhat interesting sense of humour. They had just completed a film certain to upset the moral majority. It was called House of Whipcord, in which those same moral guardians kidnap young women, abusing and murdering them if they fail to meet their demanding standards. They were looking for their next subject with which to deprave and corrupt the British public, when Walker had a brainwave. I've got it, he said on a late night call to McGillivray. Cannibalism! McGillivray met up with Pete Walker that next day to flesh out the story, if you'll pardon the expression. McGillivray added an amusing diary entry later that day. Pete's story concerns an apparently innocent and charming girl who is in fact killing men for her mother to eat. It's outrageous enough to be a winner. It is at this point that Tony Tenza steps back into our story. Out on his own, he decided he would form a new company that would put together a film package script, director, stars, and leave the distribution part to someone else. And the first script he looked at was McGillivray's first attempt at the movie, at that time called Covered in Blood. Well, you can't accuse McGillivray and Walker of subtlety. They suggested another title to Tenza, Nightmare Farm, which he rejected, before eventually settling on Frightmare. In the film, the actress Sheila Keith plays the cannibal mother who lures unsuspecting victims to their death by giving them tarot card readings in her cosy little cottage, serving them a cup of tea before butchering them with red-hot pokers, knives and drills. Did you cut them, dear? Yes. Then uh, we shall see what we shall see. 
You didn't come by car, did you? Why? No, I don't think you did. Now, this signifies you, dear, the Queen of Pentacles. Cunning, passionate, self-reliant. This covers you. This crosses you. This beneath you. This behind you. This crowns you. And this is before you. I think you've had a sudden loss, haven't you? Not a death. A sudden departure. I think it's your husband. Yes. You did say your name was Delia, didn't you? You don't like being left on your own, do you, Delia? You're frightened you're going to be left by yourself. But don't worry about that, will you, dear? My husband? What else do you know about him? Nothing. But I know everything about you. Then perhaps you'd like to tell me. Perhaps you'd like to tell me. Perhaps I wouldn't. Delia. Look, I've paid you a considerable amount of money. There is your considerable amount of money. There is your future. You're quite mad. <laughs> You've locked this door. The reason Frightmare is such a wonderful film is mainly due to Sheila's performance. Filled as it is with humour, pathos, and menace. Sheila Keith appeared in most of Pete Walker's films, and she was a quite wonderful actress, who the Times described as a British horror icon. And if you seek out Pete Walker's films for no other reason, seek them out for Sheila. This time, Tony did not interfere with filming at all. He knew that Pete Walker was by now a consummate professional at this sort of thing, and apart from offering his experience on what Walker was and was not likely to get past the censor, he left the diabolical duo of Walker and McGillivray to create their vicious masterpiece. And it all went so smoothly. Pete Walker finished his shooting bang on schedule after just 25 days of shooting, and the film was ready for release just six months after Walker and Tenza's first meeting. It all seemed to be going so well, but then the film was released, right in the middle of an IRA bombing campaign, and then the reviews came in. Reactionary, hysterical reviews, in the most notable case from a journalist who hadn't even bothered to see it. But he knew someone who had, he claimed, and this was a fellow of stout constitution who had been just sickened by the film, and this therefore made the journalist who hadn't seen the film an expert but the condemnation was almost universal. A thoroughly nasty film. Nauseating rubbish. A particularly repellent and tried to be both ridiculous and nasty. Brutal and very, very moral obscenity. And I, I could not it. stomach this Disgusting, repulsive, nauseating rubbish. The critics missed the point of the film altogether. Laced with black humour, this is undoubtedly Pete Walker's best film. The gore, which the critics railed against, is actually quite mild, 
given that this film was released in the wake of Night of the Living Dead and Deep Red. Even the disturbing nature of the film's subject is undercut by the puckish humour on display, and this is aided by Sheila Keith's wonderfully over-the-top performance as the mad cannibal mother. She was Walker's personification of the British moral majority, hypocritical, immoral, and dangerous. And perhaps that's why the pernicious British press turned against this film so violently. They knew mockery when they saw it. Of course, none of this bothered Walker and McGillivray very much, they were used to it. Despite lower box office for this film than for their previous movie, House of Whipcord, they were content to have made a splash big enough to finance their next film. But for Tony Tenza, this last box office disappointment was also the last straw. Ah, thought we could make it work, he said. But Frightmare finished that off. 1976 and 77 saw the release of two of the biggest exploitation films of all time, Jaws and Star Wars. Both the types of film that Hollywood wouldn't have gone near in decades past, but now they were out exploiting the independents, and the home video market was doing what Tony Tenza used to do, repackaging foreign films and extreme films. Only home video could do it faster, cheaper, and on a scale that Tony could only have dreamed of the decade before. As Tony saw it, the only way to stay in the game would be to go relentlessly down market. The films were so expensive to produce, and we had to compete with videotapes, he said. And it had all gone a bit too far, a bit too extreme. Every film had to have sex and horror scenes, and it had to be real guts and goodness knows what. I wasn't into that. I'd had enough. Tony Tenza stepped away from film production. The man David McGillivray had dubbed the Irving Thalberg of exploitation was gone, and with him the British film industry. Outfits like Rank and EMI would struggle on for a few more years, but for all intents and purposes, the thriving, exciting world of British independent cinema was gone. For a while. However, there was a funny little postscript to Tony's career. It came with a film called Eskimo Nell, a sex comedy released in 1974. It tells the story of independent film producer Benny Yu Murdoch, played by Roy Kinnear. Benny runs Bomb Productions, and he wants to make a film called Eskimo Nell. Do you think you'll be able to direct that, young Dennis? Yes. I I see snow. Rather in the style of Dr. Zhivago, possibly. Yeah, I did the follow-up to that. Randy Revolution. So, what do you reckon to it, young Harris? Think you're going to be able to write it? Well, um, it's just that I'm not very well up on Eskimos. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. I'll tell you, you see, Eskimo Nell was a famous dirty poem. It's all about this bird and these two fellows, Dead-Eyed Dick and Mexican Pete. Well, whatever they do, they can't satisfy her, see? They try everything, they get up to everything. Well, I mean, there's one point where he gets his rifle and... <laughs> where is it? Where is it? Let's see. Here we are. Here we are. But Mexican Pete, he jumped to his feet to avenge his pole's affront. His long-nosed colt with a jarring jolt, he drove right up a... <laughs> Benny you, Murdoch speaking. All the time on a sunny summer's day Out of film school, young man made his way A budding film director, Dennis was his name 
set to make his fortune and his fame. And he nearly made it, but listen while I tell about the trials and tribulations of the makings of Eskimo In the film, Benny has trouble raising the financing and has to go to three different partners for funding, each of whom want a completely different film. Now, I've got a guy who's interested in putting up a third of the money. Now, the only point is he won't actually put the money in the bank until I get the other two thirds and the script written. So that's where you come in, young Harris. Don't worry about the business side of things. Leave all that up to me. As far as you getting paid is concerned, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. You'll have to trust me on this. Hundred uh, pounds after profits. Now I can't say fairer than that, can I? Not considering I'm giving you a chance to make your first film. Right, that's settled. Now then. The poor writer and director end up making three completely different versions of the same film. And if this story is sounding familiar to you, there is a reason. It was written by Tony's one-time discovery, Michael Armstrong clearly drawing on his own painful experiences in making The Haunted House of Horror. He also stars in this film, which is actually quite kind in its portrayal of Tony, uh, Benny. Doesn't matter whether it's England, America, Italy, Japan, doesn't matter. You get a bird up there pulling her knickers down and it's something they all understand. Back to the street again. All this walking could drive a man insane. Logical, isn't it? I mean, which would you rather see? An arty crafty film or a bloody great fairy tit? What do you mean I am paid for eight months? I'll, you, I'll sue you. That's what I'll do. I'll bleed you, sue you. I don't care who your uncle is. I'll sue him and all. That wasn't the Philippe Marceau picture about the Spanish Civil War, was it? No, this was about lesbianism in a convent. You've got to give the public what it wants. I did a film a few years ago, it was called Midnight Forever. Didn't take a cent. So what did I do? I changed the title to Dirty Knickers, cleaned up. You see, if you haven't got a good title, you're finished. It is a good-natured, funny film, which looks back on those times with more affection than bitterness. And if you've enjoyed this podcast series, I recommend you watch Eskimo Nell. It's a lovely little time capsule of low-budget filmmaking in this era. Just the opening scene of an optimistic young director in Wardour Street captures something of the faded glamour and sleazy showmanship of the era. But it was a world to which Tony no longer belonged. In 1978, Tony moved to Southport, Lancashire, He'd completely given up the movie business and moved into property development and even furniture sales. And if that seems like a strange move for the wheeler dealer of Wardour Street, the man who could turn a profit from failure and sell a film from a poster alone, it was actually quite in keeping with his reliable business savvy. He was still living the quiet life of a retiree when in 2007 Tony Tenza died. Quietly and with no great fanfare, other than some gentle obituaries in the national newspapers, reliving some notorious moments from his career, from the Bridget Bardot stripper protest to his triumphs with Michael Reeves. But he wasn't altogether forgotten in all of that time. In 2005, he was invited to the Festival of Fantastic Movies in Manchester for a retrospective of his films. I'd never even been asked for my autograph before, he said, and suddenly, all these fans most of them not even born when I was making films, and they were all over me. They knew far more about the films than I did, and they had stills and press books that I hadn't seen for 30 years. 
It was a wonderful experience to know that so many people had an interest in my films, but to be honest, I was more than a little bit surprised. Tony was touched. He'd never thought of himself as the talent. He was just the man who worked for the talent. And for a couple of days, he was that man again. The swinging gent of Soho. The Wardour Street maverick who built a mini empire. He sat in amongst the audience, watching those old movies, made by so many of his old friends. Michael Klinger. Peter Cushing. Vincent Price. Christopher Lee. Ian Ogilvy. Raquel Welch and Patrick Curtis. Boris Karloff. And Michael Reeves. The lights dimmed, the curtains opened, and as the silver flickering light danced above his head, Tony Tenzer smiled. Thank you for joining us for the concluding part of the Tony Tenzer story. Join us next time when we'll be looking at the life of a woman whose Hollywood career spanned five decades, the larger-than-life and smarter-than-a-whip tale of actress Shelley Winters. But until then, goodbye. And they nearly made it, but now you've heard me tell. About the trials and tribulations Oh, making the best This episode of the Big Screen Biograph was recorded in Paraparaumu, New Zealand. It was written and presented by Val Thomas. I would also like to acknowledge the fantastic book Beasts in the Cellar by John Hamilton, which informed much of this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at BigBiograph, or you can email us at BigScreenBiograph at gmail.com. And once again, thank you for your company. I shall be back with more stories next 